Filmmakers make films, but films make filmmakers. From blockbuster premieres to grindhouse theaters, late night cable to the local video store, there is no greater classroom for aspiring filmmakers than cinema itself. Join your host, Eric Skorzynski, as he dives deep into the minds of legendary directors, producers, actors, and more to discover their biggest influences and to explore the impact their films are leaving behind. This is Film School. Grab your popcorn. Class is about to begin. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. Joe, thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, excited to chat with you today because you're kind of the perfect fit for this show because everything Uh you talk about, everything you do kind of bleeds with your love for for movies and cinema. And I kind of wanted to know what was the first thing that kind of rocked your world and made you go like, oh, I love movies. This was it. Oh my God. I mean, there's, there's too many. And it's funny because I was watching Ghostbusters last night um, because, you know, I'm, I'm, (laughs) it sounds so weird. It's like I'm preparing for afterlife, which if you say it like out of context, you go, what the hell? Like, but I I wanted to really kind of um, remind myself of why I love that movie so much (laughs) so that I can bring that love into the new one with it, you know, with an open mind. I know, you know, too many Ghostbuster incels in the past have probably taken that a little too seriously when it came to the last remake. And then this one being such a direct connection to the original film. And I will never forget the feeling that I had when I saw the original Ghostbusters, because this was right after I had started to realize because I was a a nincompoop when I was a little kid, that there weren't people behind the screen acting out the scenes. Mm. For the longest time, I thought that there were performers in C-3PO suits and with lightsabers and, you know, and all the actors and all the props and sets were actually behind the screen, like more of a theatrical experience Mm. to the point where I would actually run down. This is back in the day when there would would only be um, two feet, like two screens in a given theater, like those, those mom and pop ones before all the multiplexes came out. Um, they were much bigger rooms, but they all had um, exits that were like on the left and the right, but they would, be, they would give you access to what was essentially behind the screen. Hmm. I thought that the, like, I thought Luke Skywalker was going to be behind there. I right. thought that may, maybe there's a chance that like Peter Venkman and all those guys would be back there sure. and be like, Hey, what's up? You know, I almost slide you next. Um but essentially, I, I came to the realization that that is not true. But it was still the feeling that a 2D image of, like, like with Ghostbusters, I, I'll never forget the moment when, and it's such a random moment too, when the guy gets in the cab and Reitman slides the camera over to reveal the disgusting Steve Johnson cab driver zombie. And I, and I remember being genuinely freaked out by that. And yeah. again, I had seen many horror movies at that point. I think it was just that my brain at the time when I was seven, um, my brain equated PG movies with being safe, that I was yeah. in a safe space. Um, which is crazy because, you know, I, I grew up in the era where HBO was coming out and you could watch Beastmaster or Poltergeist or even Salem's Lot. And there were incredibly disturbing moments in those films 
during the day, like mm-hmm. in broad daylight. Whereas I always expected them to be, you know, um, presented to you at night when it's supposed to be spooky and scary. Right. So, you know, those little random moments when I was a little kid before I was able to literally pull the curtain back and realize that like it's makeup, it's special effects, it's miniatures, it's optical printing. And now it's all VFX. Uh, I was still able to kind of um, relinquish my, my, like my eye for craft and just fall into the story and just fall into the characters and, and, and believe. And that's the thing that um, it's kind of like the Santa Claus factor where there is a part of you, especially now that I'm a parent that wants to hold on to the hopes that your kids will continue to think that there's still magic in the world, like Santa Claus Mm. and you hold it all the way up to a point. And then you get to that, that one Christmas where they're like, yeah, I know it's you, you know, it's like, you're the one who's biting, biting the carrot and eating the cookie and putting all the the presents out. I know when the closet starts to get full and I'm not allowed to go in that room. Like I I get it now, but if you can retain that for as long as possible, that's a gift. Yeah. And with movies, you know, I, I lost that very early, like very early on. I think it was probably when I started to really read Fangoria. Mm. Uh, and started to realize like, oh, wow, there is a lot of craft that goes into, you know, even just the creature designs, even the, right. you know, the, the blood effects and everything. Um, but then going, oh, but there's cameras involved and there's lenses and there's lights and there's, you know, actors in costume. Uh, once you start to peel that curtain back a little bit, I, I don't necessarily want to say that um, you lose a little bit of that luster because look, so many of us have worked in the business so long. We still love movies. We still, you know, like like appreciate them. But once you stop, once you, no, to be honest, it's once you start realizing like things like making your days and, you know, having to have things that don't work on set and how that will impact the rest of your day. And, um, you know, just realizing that there is money involved that will directly affect your storytelling skills and what ends up on screen. Once that becomes part of your life, it's a, it's a little harder to fall into loving a movie. For example, um, when I was making this movie called Nights of Bad Aston, I was up in Spokane, Washington at the time shooting it. And it was a miserable experience because I went in going, we're making Goonies for grownups. And, you know, I grew up with the Goonies. So to yeah. me, I just thought like it was Dick Donner setting up a tripod and all the kids, like in the caves and all the kids were just kind of doing their thing and he'd capture it and they'd put it on the screen. And that was it. Not realizing child labor laws and, you know, effects that don't, will not work. And all the things that go into making a movie like that. So, Nights of Bad Aston was such a disaster of an experience from the production standpoint. I found out later that it was partially due to the fact that it was a Ponzi scheme. So they were lying to us in terms of budget, what we had and all the resources. But, you know, being such a huge Edgar Wright fan and such a huge Scott Pilgrim fan at the time, Mm -hmm. Scott Pilgrim was coming out on one of the weekends that I was shooting. I was so excited for it. Oh my God. Like, because I love the comic and I love what Edgar was doing and everything I had seen was just kind of like totally my jam. And I could not have disliked it more at the time 
because I had heard, and I even talked to Edgar about this at the time. He was like, oh yeah, I had like 80 shooting dates. And I was in the middle of hell on my 15th day out of 24 and going, how the hell can I compete with that when I'm making my movie, you know, and, and comparing, and that's the hardest thing is like when you start comparing production value and time, how it, how long it takes to, you know, make a movie. It's sometimes it's, it, it, it dulls the light a little bit sure. in wanting to fall into watching the movie. Now that said, I just saw Scott Pilgrim again in 4k um, when uh, it came out, I think in like April or something like that, they did a re-release Mm-hmm. And I went to the Burbank 16 and just kind of got, cause I, and you know, what's funny. I never seen the movie again. I like, I almost felt like embarrassed that I walked out of that movie going, fuck you, Edgar. Like, how dare you like try to make a cool movie with 80 days? Like fuck this, you suck. And, and that, that's look, totally unfair. If I was just a, a casual movie fan, or if I wasn't in the middle of production, right. I probably would have liked it so much more, but I took so much bias from my own, issues and problems trying to make a movie that I, I foisted that onto this, onto Scott Pilgrim and just watching it again in April. It's a fucking masterpiece because I, and I wasn't in production at the time. So I was able to sit back, eat my popcorn, watch every whip pan and body wipe go by and, and be thrilled with it and just kind of fall into the, you know, the storytelling skills that Edgar obviously has without having to compare it to myself. Well, that, that, I mean, it kind of shows how much we bring with us to the theater. Like there's so much mm-hmm. baggage, e- even even outside of the filmmaking realm, you know, like watching uh, a movie like Hereditary after you've experienced loss is going to affect you oh. a lot differently or walking into any any type of film, you know, is going walking into mayhem after having a bad day at work. It's going to play a yeah. little bit differently. I See, um, what's funny is that the, I, I was praying for that with mayhem mm. because I knew how much it was personal to me because I went through that. Yeah. But also knowing like if I felt that way, I'm hoping other people are going to bring that type of baggage to it so that they feel like it's more cathartic. Yeah. Um, you sometimes sometimes you want the audience to leave their baggage at the door and just kind of like let the film wash over them in an entertainment way, um, in uh, a message sort of way. But then there's there are times that you go no no grab your bags mm-hmm. bring them along with us and we'll all jump into the the ferry like Willy Wonka and we'll let it like just kind of we'll absorb all of it and hopefully by the time it's over we can at least go you feel that way too so do I you know yeah. sometimes you want it to be a passive experience but sometimes you want it to be you want people to bring that stuff to the table right well you've I'm, I'm kind of curious because there is this level of magic. It, yes, you lose the magic of just believing everything on screen, but you get the magic of seeing how it's made. You get a new level of respect for the craft and the people behind it. And you've mm-hmm. mentioned people like George Romero. You've mentioned Toby Hooper as inspirations. Is that something that, you know, aside from the films being amazing, which they are, do you resonate with kind of the scrappy nature of them taking very limited resources? They weren't getting 80 days. You know, they were out in the middle of Texas, you know, nowhere shooting mm-hmm. and trying to make something work. Is that part of the appeal of those types of filmmakers? I think, well, if you, if you take George and Toby specifically, um, here are two filmmakers that basically pulled up their socks and said, well, I'm, we're going to make the, you know, these 
stories visually with whatever we have mm-hmm. with whoever's around and they did it in a very do it yourself kind of sensibility and having grown up in the the world where like in the 90s where you know people are doing human testing to get a budget for El Mariachi or just putting mm-hmm. everything on a credit card like in clerks but they're getting those movies done they're getting them made they're putting they're being put out in theaters or at least festivals so to look back at like both George and Toby and how they made, you know, Five Living Dead or Texas Chainsaw Massacre respectively, but then evolved. And you can see like the George who had no money for night, who had a little more money for Dawn, mm-hmm. who had a lot, like a little bit more money for, you know, Creep Show or Night Riders. And then, you know, to, to take his biggest, biggest budget film, I guess would be Land of the Dead, yeah. you know, and on the flip side, look at Toby and, you know, to go from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which had a very definitive style, was wearing its like do-it-yourself kind of attitude almost on its sleeve. But that was, and not to sidebar this, but that was something that was a byproduct of bad prints and um, a, like a lot, of, a lot less attention paid to the aesthetic of Texas mm-hmm. Chainsaw because everyone just kept saying like, oh, it's practically a docudrama. It's very verite. But when the elite laser disc of Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out in the mid 90s and they cleaned it up and they showed you like not everything is brown in the movie and there's actual no. dolly shots. There is legitimate style and craft in that film. Oh. It's just that they didn't have any money to like pushy even further yeah. but they still it's a very stylish film but to go from that movie to poltergeist and to life force and to these bigger budget films that clearly show that if given the money and the time that these filmmakers aren't just kind of resting on the laurels of their do-it-yourself attitude right they're they're evolving their style you know oh. so but i don't think that they would have you know they wouldn't gotten where they were if they just said like, no, something's just going to fall into my lap and I'm going to make it work. And my style is not going to evolve at all because you can look at following, you can look at Chris Nolan's following, and then you can look at Dunkirk or, you know, Tenet, and you can see the same filmmaker in there. It's just, it's just the canvases are getting bigger and it's a matter of really like seeing, can this filmmaker be able to command, you know, a much larger scope, and budget and a bigger kind of army behind them, yeah. even, you know, on, on a bigger scale or a smaller scale, same, still the same person, you know, right. I've, I just, I'm more inspired by those filmmakers that can had, didn't get anything handed to them that they mm-hmm. just said, fuck it. Let's, you know, I got 59 cents and a roll of duct tape. Let's make this work. Yeah. And they did, you know, and then you get to see like, okay, they didn't just stay on that path. They themselves wanted to, broaden their horizons or right. widen their scope, you know, and that, that to me, that just gave me hope that I could do it as well, even though maybe at the time I was going, well, I got this duct tape and I got this change here. Like it's going to make something right. You know, and then it will lead to, you know, a dollar 24 and a bigger roll of duct tape, even right. better, you know? Yeah. Well, the craft elevates, you know, each time. And that's where it is funny. Like someone like Toby Hooper, you know, I, I got to see text chains on the big screen, you know, and it was like, Oh, it's a really well shot movie. Like Daniel Pearl's mm-hmm. cinematography in that movie is crazy. But then, you know, when people talk about poltergeist, how could the Texas chainsaw guy do this? I was like, have you seen life force? Like that's a gorgeous movie that but I visually- get, I get yeah. how, I get how people, 
you know, gave, there was that whole, you know, and it's mm-hmm. still this debate today, you know, it's that like, could be a whole oh, podcast, that's not yeah. a, that's <laughs> not a, a Toby Hooper movie. That's a Steven Spielberg movie. You yeah. know, like I, I don't subscribe to that at all, you know, no. and I've heard people who will vehemently say like, oh no, Steven Spielberg was the director on that set. And there's people who are like, no, 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 that was totally <laughs> Toby Hooper on the set. And you know what? They're both right. And they're both wrong, you yeah. know, because film is truly a collaborative medium. I, I don't think Toby was stupid in thinking that he was making a, you know, a movie with Steven Spielberg that was designed to be PG that had a family squarely rooted in the center of the story that he couldn't take the same visual ticks and the same kind of scope approach that he did with eaten alive or Texas chainsaw mm-hmm. and apply it to poltergeist. It was like, you have to pivot or a good storyteller knows when to do that. Not just yeah. to go like, I am going to literally force feed my vision. Mm-hmm. The one that you guys all know me for, you know, all the way up to Funhouse, into the story here. You know, like that's not fair. That's not like, if anything, that's not good filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Good filmmaking is when you can watch someone who can easily pivot between Desperado and Spy Kids mm-hmm. and go, yeah, that totally makes sense. It's still a Rodriguez film, but he's catering it to a slightly different audience or a different, you know, wheelhouse or even just, um, you know, a different tastes, if you will. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I mean, you saw James Wan do that. You know, he went from the, the horror, you know, genre into Fast and the Furious and did what I think is and maybe then, the, the best Aquaman. movie in that series. And then Aquaman and then took that money and did like the most crazy throwback, gory, crazy movie that it is, uh, you know, it's, it's but, just, but you can, you can still see, like, even if you look at it's still you know, one, movies that you know. he's not, that he's not as well known for, like, I think death sentence is mm-hmm. fucking amazing. And that's, that movie is three years away from being everybody's favorite James Wan movie. I truly believe that. It's like yeah. there, there needs to be that like seven to 10 year gap between, all right, when, you know, the movie first came out and people were like, from the director of Saw? Yeah. Okay, I guess. You know, I, I was actually on the promotional tour with Fox around the same time that that was coming out because we were doing Comic-Con together. And I remember one of the Fox executives going like, it's almost like we can't say from the director of saw because then people are going to go in there thinking that it's going to be torture porn. And it's really, it's really a death wish. Uh It's a different type of movie, you know? And then you watch that movie and go, Holy shit, the level of craft involved. But then you can see it's the same exact guy that years later is using the camera in the same way in both Aquaman, where there's that scene where, you know, all the, the, the guys in the white armor come into the house and Nicole Kimmons beating mm-hmm. the shit out of him and he's swooping the camera around to the moment in Malignant where the, um, uh, Gabriel is taking out everybody in the police station. Yeah. You know, It's still the same filmmaker. It's just he's smart enough to know, all right, who is the audience for? You know, can I, can I apply all of my bag of tricks into this particular story? And he's got enough bags, you know, and enough tricks to be able to apply that to everyone, but still make it his own without forgetting the audience. Because at the end of the day, it, it is all about the audience, whether you're telling a joke that's going to be for you and your buddies or to a thousand people or a Netflix special, you have to gauge your audience. You have to know your audience enough. Um, like recently I just done a Disney show where, you know, even my mom is like, what? What? 
How the fuck did that? Who is this? (laughs) Exactly. Um, And you know, part of the drive for me to do that was I want something my kids can actually watch, you know, for a change, and not wait five more years before I can show them. Can they not watch Wrong Turn? Yeah, I was was not yet. No, no, no. I mean, uh, Remy, my twelve-year-old, is very squeamish. Uh, Ferris or Chuck, as uh, as he likes to call himself, Um, he's seven. He's already asking me, like, okay, break it down for me, Dad. How does Leatherface kill? How does Chucky kill? What's, <laughs> what, what, what murder weapons does Jason use? I'm like, where the fuck are you getting all this shit from? Then again, I can look back at myself and go, how did I know all that stuff when I was seven? Um, so they're, they're very, their sensibilities are very different, which I love in a way. But I also know that like, they both love uh, you know, Marvel movies. They both love superhero films because they're kids. And who doesn't? I mean, we're all kids and we all love that shit. So to be able to do something that's in that wheelhouse, that is like, I can actually say like, okay, it's not on shutter. It's right. on Disney plus. Right. They're like, wow, dad, you're a real filmmaker. I thought like you only made crap that was on like those other streaming services. It's like, no, no, no. This one, you might have a thumbnail right next to the Simpsons or right next to the Mandalorian, who knows? Hmm. Um, but again, that was, me being like that, the, the fun challenge with that one was again, just taking all of the skills that I have as a filmmaker and in a practical sense, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not getting hired purely because the, the showrunners love my fucked up aesthetic or my weird sense of humor or how I shoot action or how I shoot, you know, set pieces. Um, they also know that I'm good with actors. So that's a practical skill set. Um, or th- that I enjoy working with actors. Um, I, I know exactly what I need on set. And if I don't get that on set, that I'm not going to sit there and go, Rumpf, I'm going to my trailer until I get what I, you know, my vision right. desires on TV. You don't have time for that. Um, you have to pivot. You have to, um, what's the, uh, the not compromise, but you have to, uh, adapt, you mm-hmm. know, to anything that's going to come your way, good, bad, or ugly, you know? Raining today, figure something else out. Actors not on set, um, you know, in time, figure something else out. I'm a good problem solver. So a lot of these very practical skills being applied to a very creative process, um, that to me, I think is what got me hired for the Disney thing. I mean, also, it, it's very weird to think that like the, the showrunners were huge fans of Mayhem. That's kind of what started the whole conversation. But then to be in a, a very big Disney executive meeting and the showrunners are like, oh, you know, here's um, here's Joe Lynch. He's, he made one of our favorite fucked up midnight movies. I'm like, that's not the way that you introduced me. to. Like, Disney I'll see myself executives. out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, here, I'll, hold on. I'll Homer Bush gif out of this situation. Um, but the way that they described it, you know, they the way that what they were looking for in terms of a director to be able to apply this, because when you're doing what's essentially episodic um, TV in a way, because it was, there was like three or four directors on this one project. You're passing the baton, you know? So whoever set and established the style of the show through the pilot, now there has to be a certain sense of consistency. So you have to um, conform to that a little bit. So all in all, it's the director needs to read the room. And I don't mean that like the room of the set, you need to read the room of the audience you need to read read the room of the um, 
you know, the way that the craft is being made. You don't want to upend the apple cart by going like, I need a techno crane. We've never used a techno crane. I don't care. If you have you seen my last two films, I had a right. techno crane on that. And you're going to have to, you know, like make that happen. You have to adapt. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a matter of just being able to read the room on so many fronts that allows filmmakers to go from, say, Texas Chainsaw Massacre to Poltergeist. Like the fact that Spielberg was such a fan of, of Texas Chainsaw enough to think, I want that guy to do my family haunted house movie, you know? That takes a lot of balls, but it also, you know, whether you want to say like, you know, was, was Toby a good director or a bad director on set? No one will ever know that answer for sure, especially now. But you still have to appreciate that Spielberg and all those guys knew that there was going to be something particular that Toby was going to bring to the table that I don't think anybody else would have, you know, no. and that that's that's a to me, that's Toby being a good director. That's Toby being like the kind of director that can adapt to a situation, make still somewhat make it his own, but still serve the greater good, which is to deliver a story that is done for the masses. You know, yeah. what, what is that balance of making it your own? Because I, I interviewed someone who um, Michelle Morgan was on uh, Heartland, you know, and she was starring, mm-hmm. you know, then 14 seasons in or whatever it was, then she switches into directing you know, and you're in an established world, <laughs> you know, how do you make that your own? How do you put your stamp onto something where there are other things to consider the audience? You can't make a movie for your, just yourself. Well, I mean, you know, it, it really depends on, on the content. Um, and I hate even using the word content because it's, it's such an easy thing now that you can look at, uh, you know, squid game and uh, you know, last action hero in the same bucket uh, of thumbnails on Netflix, and go like they're the same thing to someone. Right. Someone's gonna go like, oh, that's just a last action hero is a two two episode limited series as opposed to Squid Game being a ten hour movie in a way. It's it's semantics at this point. But when it comes to stuff like that, um, like like in terms of making things your own, I think movies are still under the formula that there is one shaman, right? Like a storyteller that's sitting you around the campfire and is going to tell you this one, this one story, so to speak. And, you know, in, in a, in a shorter amount of time, which is, you know, now you can look at TV as like essentially what, like what novels are as opposed to, films almost being short stories in a way because like think about it, there's going to be a whole generation of people that are going to be completely used to watching 10 hours of content it's crazy and two hours of content and you know kind of um judging them on the same realm whereas mm-hmm. years ago it was like no there was a clear delineated line between films yeah. And television, literally, now that's all, even the early two thousands, there was a clear line of quality yeah. between even, TV. Even and- if you look at, you know, like The Sopranos or um, uh, Six Feet Under or whatever, it was that they were starting to implement the kind of budgets that made you think that you were watching Goodfellas, not a TV show. Mm-hmm. You know, like oh wow, there's actual style going into this, or True Detective, where you can have you know a oneer, and it just kind of people go like, oh yeah, that's. That's there instead of going, whoa. Yeah, exactly. Like we're now expecting that kind of production value. When it comes to putting your stamp on things, um, you know, I think movies allow you to do that more because you're, you're again, telling as the, the, as the 
cinematic shaman, you're telling something in a shorter form and you're not having to rely on other filmmakers as well that are going to have very subjective opinions on where they're going to put the camera, how they're going to talk to the actors, um, edit beats, how you execute, you know, certain gags, an overall tone on set that can obviously affect the output that you get from your cast and your crew. Um, you know, when you have a, a shorter burst of creativity like that in films, um, I think you, you just, people are more focused on that short amount of time that you have together in that circle. Whereas with TV, it can be anything from six hours to six years worth of content. Mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, I think the, the terminology of where, like who's the author in a way changes a little bit purely because of workflow. You know, there is the showrunner Mm -hmm. or showrunners. And, you know, that they're the ones who are there that are taking all of the, you know, because if you think about it, like when a director is on set on a feature film, they have a second unit director, sometimes a third unit director, that you have to convey your style, the way that you want it to be presented or executed. Um, you have to convey that to them and it becomes a, a like a, a game of telephone. And then hopefully when, it, when all that stuff comes back, mm-hmm. it's what you saw in your head. With TV, in a way, the showrunner is to me like, and now that I've worked with enough TV on enough TV to know like what the pecking order is, uh, and I love working in TV because you have this, um, you know, the showrunner is essentially the director in a way, like in the same breath that a director would be the voice in a feature film. And every director that goes out and does, you know, blocks or episodes is just another unit. And it's all about communication. So, you know, if you're conveying, you know, how you want a particular shot or how you want like a certain story beat presented, you just have to be incredibly clear to whoever is going to exact that, you know, um, it, to me, it's all about communication. So when you're putting your stamp on things, you know, whether it's, you're doing it in, um, in script form, Mm -hmm. you know, where you're making sure that the dialogue or the character beats or even the story beats are serving their purpose for the greater good but also to like those little uh those those little spice moments that you you know that you get when there's that perfect symbiosis of you know the actor and the camera and everything else around it making people feel comfortable enough to be able to create something off the page um those little moments are created by chemistry and they're created by you know whoever it is, whether it's the director on the feature film or the showrunners um, on the TV show, they're the ones who are part of putting all these people together to hopefully create something for the greater good. So, you know, like, like when it comes to say, for example, all right. So in the last year I've worked on a, a lot of TV, which is great. I mean, fuck, man, I'm working. It's like, it's a great feeling to be able to have, you know, feature films in development right now um, or, or possibly about to go in one case. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you want to stay frosty because there's nothing worse than want like being a director and not being on set because you feel like you get used to the, the butterflies in your stomach when you're going to set going, oh, my God, I have to talk to 200 people today. It gets easier every time you do it and every mm-hmm. day that you do it and every project that you can do makes it easier to tackle many of the challenges that come your way. And there are many. Yeah. So, 
in one respect, you know, I did Creepshow. And now with Creepshow, that was an anthology. And one of the things that I think was really smart on Greg's uh, and the, the producer's end was that, you know, you have the IP of Creepshow. When you say the word Creepshow, in most cases, people are going to know what you're going for, you know, whether it's the macabre kind of feeling from Stephen King with that little hint of humor, that um, satirical kind of uh, morality tale that Romero brought to the first one and even Gornick in the second one, you know, Creepshow established itself and a formula. After that, you know, Greg being the showrunner, you know, he knew when he was getting all these stories, what he was basically going for. So the scripts, by the time they got to the directors, were somewhat fully formed mm-hmm. pieces of material that reflected the IP. Now the exciting part is, what's David Bruckner going to bring to the table? What's Tom right. Savini going to bring to the table? What's Roxanne Benjamin going to bring to the table? What's Rob Schraub going to bring to the table? Um, that really got exciting for people. And th- at the same time, like now... I can look back at this and I mean, that's kind of what I thought when I first, when I heard about the project, I'm like, what could I bring to the table for Creepshow knowing that, you know, also Creepshow was such a definitive yeah. quote unquote IP in my life. And it was so important to me as a little kid. And even now it established a lot of who I am as a filmmaker and my sensibilities, you know, like the, the, the tone of it, even just the style sometimes, what could I do in that form? And I can look back now and A, go, I got incredibly lucky because I had four wildly different stories. You know, Pipe Screams is a Euro trash, you know, 90s, um, you know, sleaze fest. Uh, The Right Snuff is an idealized 60s sci-fi retro throwback. Familiar is, uh, you know, like a 70s paranoid thriller a la Polanski. And Meter Reader is... George Miller by way of Danny Boyle and Sergio Corbucci. Mm. You can't get any more different. And, you know, and maybe that will shoot me in the foot for future TV because people are going to go like, well, what, what is his style? But I think you can look at all four of those and easily pick out like, you know, quote unquote, Joe Lynch moments because of, Mm -hmm. if you've seen the the stuff that I've done in the past, you know, kind of what I like to do with the camera, what I like to do with the actors, what I like to do with gags, but to have, four wildly different stories and then for all of them to still at the same time feel like creep show that to me is is testament to like what nicotero was going for where it's like he can have these scripts that feel like george and steven and you know even savini kind of put their seal of approval on it before it even goes out and then see what other directors who might have been influenced by Creepshow in the past, or maybe don't even know what the fuck Creepshow was, what they're going to bring to the table. And that's where you can, quote unquote, put your stamp on it. Now, yeah. that said, you also have to make your days. You also have to work with a very limited budget and very limited time. Uh, and and look, truth be told, not every director was cut out for that. You know, mm-hmm. um, that, that show in particular was grueling at times because it was, all right, you have to, reset and create a whole new world in three days. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was more a testament to the amazing production uh, production designer uh, and all the art department people that they could basically hit the reset button and make a whole new story. Cause the thing with TV that kept costs down 
was they had um, consistency sets. There was the living room. There was the uh, you know police station. There was the interrogation room. There was the you know the the morgue. There were yeah. all these sets that they could go back to in subsequent episodes. That there wasn't a new build. It was already there. It was standing sets. You could easily just kind of go like, all right, we're going to go to that set now. Not go, all right, when is the set done? Like that was the hardest part with um, the first block of um, Creep Show. I'm sorry if I'm going all over the place, but you know, you got me going. Uh, <laughs> but with like with Creep Show, the first in the the second season, the one the first that I had done, um, pipe screams was an easier starting off point because they actually retro retrofitted a bunch of sets from the previous uh, a previous episode to make our apartment my our bathroom and our um basement so these were sets that were already standing that they just completely redressed and i mean god bless them that they were able to do that so so deftly right snuff that was a brand new set that was a you know i mean the way that we designed it it was supposed to look like something that like you know kubrick and saul bass came up with in 1968 Sure. And the fact that they were able to do that, but we ended up having to push a day because they, the sets weren't done. So that, and, and, you know, not, I hope that no one saw that, but like I lost six or seven shots because of that decision. Now right. you'd never know it, hopefully, you know, but though it's that kind of domino effect that can completely affect how you are going to present the story to the audience ultimately. Right. Well, uh, but what's funny though is that after, right after I was finished with Right Snuff, uh, I saw the episode. I think that played like the week after, and they had completely used the Right Snuff set for John Harrison's um, Lovecraft episode. The week later, I'm like, "Sons of bitches!" You saved them a damn day. Damn it! <laughs> yeah, exactly. If anything, that that worked out great for them because now I I gave John Harrison an extra day because he didn't have to worry about. Um, you know, waiting, uh, waiting a day for another set, you know, it's all checks and balances when it comes to TV. But I think that in, in the end, like you being able to put your quote unquote stamp on things is more a testament to how you can work a set, work with people because you're still problem. So you're still the same person problem solving on a mm -hmm. feature film as opposed to a, a TV or a commercial or a music video, you're still, whether you know it or not, you're still putting that camera or envisioning the way a moment is executed in a way that I don't think anyone else would be able to do. No. And I'm talking to you filmmaker out there. Like that's just, that's just how it, it's, it's almost subliminal. Yeah. It's just how, how are you able to acclimate that workflow in a way that won't get you fired because you're sitting there going like, I need my six minute oneer, you know, yeah. because if you saw my last two films, I had oneers. That's like it, it the, the best filmmakers are the ones that can almost do it deceptively and yeah. you won't even know it, you know, because like if you can look at Kerry Fukunaga's work in True Detective, that's to me, that's not on upon first glance, that's not the same filmmaker that did Sinombre, you know, mm -hmm. but you look at it deeper and further, you go, oh, no, it is. It's just, it's a different story. It's a different form, probably different budgets and different people behind the scenes, you know, like giving him push and pull. So at the end, though, it's still the same person calling action, still right. the same person calling cut, and still the same person picking those shots to put in there ultimately. So 
yeah. that's how you put your stamp on it is if, if anything you doing you in whatever form you're in it just depends on you know the people that you surround yourself in the, in the environment that you're putting yourself in yeah yeah and you can definitely see it watching through your filmography like there's you in wrong turn two where you had no control over the script and you're you know you're just showing how you are going to shoot it. You're putting your visual stamp on it. And then also when you look at movies like, you know, um, you know, where you're making Spartacus references in your buddy cop, you know, movie <laughs> like that yeah. to, to me, like, that's like, Oh, that's a Joe Lynch thing. Like that, that call out. I was like, there's not a lot of filmmakers who would be putting a Spartacus reference in this moment. You know, that's uniquely you, but even, <laughs> even like, um, and it's funny that you mentioned that about wrong turn too. I, I had a lot more um, creative leeway in Wrong Turn 2 because it seemed like like if you put everybody into a room together, it seemed like I was the only one that knew enough about horror movies to know what worked and what didn't. So like, but it wasn't like I was pushing myself into that situation. They just saw like, wow, he made a Friday the 13th part for the final chapter reference. And I remember that movie. And yeah, I do remember that one part with the machete and, yeah, that's really interesting. Like, yeah, what 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 else do you have to say about that matter, Joe? I didn't go like it's my way or the highway. Right. It was more that I organically proved that like I'm a bit of an I I was a bit of an expert on the genre at the time, especially splatter films, and I knew what I thought worked right. Like, perfect example of that is the opening scene mm-hmm. when Kimberly gets split in half. <laughs> When I referenced and even showed a clip from Dead Alive, now Dead Alive, if you remember, in the beginning of the film with the Sumerian monkey rat, when the uh, archaeologist is, he gets bit and the tribal members are like cutting off yeah. arms and legs and he's going, Zingaya! And then it cuts to the, the one last cut and then it cuts to black and it cuts to the title card. And I'll never forget reading the script, the original script for Long Term 2, and essentially that's what happens to Kimberly's character. Also, Kimberly's character was not supposed to be Kimberly Caldwell, you know? So I thought like at the time, why not go meta and cast a person as herself to really throw the stakes off? So the combination of having a real person getting killed and then saying to the, to the producers and the executives like, okay, I think everybody, you know, and, and maybe half the people in the room knew who, like what Dead Alive was. They knew Peter Jackson, but they weren't yeah. sure what Dead Alive was. But enough knew, like, oh, it's supposed to be this crazy, outrageous, wildly disgusting movie, uh, but but done tongue-in-cheek. Tongue I was like, all right, now imagine watching that moment in Dead Alive and going, oh, man, because you wanted to see that moment. If yeah. anything, Peter Jackson set you up for seeing that moment, and then he cuts to the title card, which is fine, because then you get the next 80 minutes of pure... Right. Madness. And you're going, okay. He gives I, you the I'll, goods I'll later slide. on. Yeah. yeah. He gets you later on. Party's over. But here I was like, if I'm going to get the audience now, we have to take that part further. So being able to, you know, politely and maturely explain, I think we need to show that. And then have storyboards like that showed it explicitly and everything on the storyboards is in that scene. Mm -hmm. Um, But also showing them like, look, here's how you do it right. Here's how I think we should do it better. And by 
communicating that with people in a studio, mind you. Like, even though it was direct-to-video, it was still Fox, and they were very conservative about it. It helped that at the time, unrated DVDs were huge. So they were just like, look, if you watch, if you can make your day, shoot it all, we'll make it into a special feature later on. Great, you know, but it was a matter of making everyone feel inclusive to be able to get those choices made. Like with Point Blank, you know, uh, the, the fact that they're in the ugliest car possible in that, in, you know, like in a car chase scene, which was a P, an orange PT cruiser with the wood paneling, like the whole point of that movie was to somewhat emasculate those two characters. And I thought, if we're going to do a car chase scene, let's do it in a car that no one would expect because everybody expects, you know, cool, fast 68 Hemi Cuda, yeah. you know, like they're just going to find one jump, you know, slide over the hood and everyone's badass again. And my point was let's subvert that. Let's, you know, like we have, our hero is in purple. He's a nurse to, you know, to, to start with. And our other quote unquote hero is injured half the movie. Mm-hmm. So already we're, we're kind of setting things up to like, based on the script, we're setting things up to be subversive and try something a little different. So I was like, well, then why not have, you know, references to, you know, uh, Metal Gear Solid and they're talking about video games or what if we had them in a PT Cruiser, Um, you know, just just to try to shake things up a little bit. I'm that's that's for me. That's always been my thing. Like, I feel like I've seen enough movies to know what's fun when you're seeing something a little different, not trying to you know reinvent the wheel. Just something where you go, I appreciate that you went, uh, like you zigged instead of zag. Right. You know, you're still getting to the same point. You're still getting to the same finish line. But if you could take the the road less traveled in a way, like if you can be like in death proof where they go up the hill instead of the straight line, mm-hmm. they'll be able to sucker punch you by, by T-boning you on the side when you least expect it. You're still going to get to the same spot. But I would much rather kind of take a PT cruiser route than your typical like, oh man, look at that cool car that they're in. You're going to forget about that car in 30 seconds. But if you're sitting there going, how the fuck is a PT Cruiser going 70 miles an hour? They might not make it out of this because I've been in a PT Cruiser. My grandmother owns a PT Cruiser and I know those things do not last very long, you know, in the trenches. So it was just, it's, that's how, to me, that's how I feel like I can make a mark by doing like, by like, making choices and, and kind of presenting ideas that you normally wouldn't expect without, again, without um, upending the apple cart, without, you know, like trying to completely change things. Because again, we still have to get to the finish line. Mm-hmm. It's just, let's take a, a slightly different route. Yeah. I, I got to ask before we move into our last round here, you know, you, you talked about getting butterflies in your stomach, going to go talk to 200 people on a set, you know, and that's still, it's still there, even though now it's getting less and less, but I I have to imagine someone who grew up devouring Fangoria and watching all these movies, you know, you just mentioned working on creep show and you helped John Harrison make his day. Greg Nicotero is the showrunner for that show. Like how sick to your stomach the first time you start working with people who were so impactful to you, like, that's a lot of responsibility because you feel like you're helping now, you know, carry that, you know, you're part of that legacy in a, in a crazy way. No pressure. (laughs) No, it's, if you let it get to you, 
um, it can affect your work. If, mm. if the, there's that old adage, fake it till you make it. Um, at this point in my career, like I feel like I can step on a set and not want to throw up completely, not be like uh, Will, uh, what is it, Willie Beeman in uh, any given Sunday where I'm just like yeah. throwing up on the field. Um, but I, I, if you lose that ability to be nervous on set, to me, it, it just means you don't care. That happened to me one time on a project. I'm not going to say what it was. Um, but it wasn't. It wasn't like it wasn't a feature. It was a very small project. But I kind of walked on on set during this thing and didn't give a shit. Like or not? not, not I, no, I shouldn't say that. It's not that I didn't give a shit. I wasn't nervous. And that scared me. I, mm. I walked off that set going. Um, shouldn't I be nervous about this? Shouldn't I have the butterflies in my stomach? And it just showed me, and I think that this is like true for every filmmaker. If you care, you're going to care about the smallest little detail because at the end of the day, that small little detail is part of your visual gesticulation. Mm -hmm. You know, like when you see a great comic and they, and they have like the perfect pause or they do something with their hand, you know, that becomes part of their routine that people will see and remember and love you or love what you're doing with that so if you're sweating all the small stuff it just to me it shows you care now you don't have to be a you know a kubrickian auteur asshole and be like that pebble is not the right or we no, no. when in ali i remember reading a story about how michael mann got pissed during like the the thrill in manila fight because someone had a belt that wasn't indicative of the time. It was like mm. a 90s belt instead of a 70s belt. Yeah. Stop production. It's like great story. Love it. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lose do precious that. minutes. <laughs> yeah. No, and like and you know what? Sometimes filmmakers, you know, that's just their thing. Um, but if you don't care to the point where you know, like I was saying before, like you know, filmmaking can become uh, a game of telephone at times. What you convey to the DP and the first AD and the producers and the screenwriter, whatever is now going to filter down into all the various departments, all the way down to the driver, knowing that he's got to be there at 1145 to pick up the actor because it's going to take them an extra 45 minutes to get into makeup to be on set on time for you to get your first take. And if that driver is late or doesn't give a shit or got the wrong information, that means that, that now that actor is going to be 15 minutes later or 30 or whatever it's going to take them longer to get into makeup. Now the makeup people are freaking out because now they're yeah. rushing and now the makeup's not going to be as good. And now that person who's going to be on set is pissed off because everyone in the room was freaking out and that can kind of throw people off. And now they're on set 15 minutes later. And now you have to try to get, now you can only get one take instead of six yeah. or two takes instead of six. And that's going to directly affect your end product sure and that sucks you know like so if you care that much and you have those butterflies in your stomach but you do it in a way that is um conducive for everyone feeling like they're um contributing you know like they're part of the process in a good way um it all filters up it all makes you feel like we're all contributing to the greater good now that said when you're collaborating with people like you know, John Harrison and Greg Nicotero, or, um, you know, even people like, um, you know, Henry Rollins and long term Two. when you're a huge black flag, uh, black flag and Rollins band fan, and you're on set telling Rollins like, okay, 
you're, you know, the mutant's going to throw his axe and you're going to, you know, dip and weave and then you're going to punch the shit out of him. And he's going, copy that, sir. Got it. Good. You know, mm-hmm. and you're going, did Henry Rollins just call me, sir? Yeah, right. What the hell is going on right. here? You have to, um, you just got to play it cool. You know, like there's a difference, like I said before, about like faking it until you make it. It's, it's stifling down the the butterflies and just showing that you're almost going like oh my god i'm working with these people this is insane and that's happened to me many times i mean you know the first time that i worked with sama you know which we didn't have the best relationship because i think she just did not know the kind of movie she was making at first but then it evolved into something really great and she's awesome in the movie but i was still incredibly intimidated when it's like one of the most beautiful actors in the world you know, a, a fantastic actor on her, in her own right, especially after like, you know, the, the last couple of movies she had done at that point, I, I was incredibly intimidated, um, especially when she can also say like, baby, I'm so rich. I could shut down this production, you know, today <laughs> right. and give everybody and pay everybody off. And I can go to Montenegro for the weekend if I really wanted to. And it's like, go, um, you want to make sure that, you know, you don't show your nervousness sure. because, then it, it to some people it can be considered weakness mm-hmm. and and they can take advantage of that so yeah. you know it, it's it's tough but you just have to stay the course and and just try to be act as cool as possible and know and and make everyone think you know exactly what you're doing yeah exactly well in the spirit of making our day we have three minutes i have five quick rapid questions i want to ask for you um first we can go a little further we can go a little longer i'm okay Okay, cool, cool. Uh, number one, uh, which of your films do you think is the best representation of you as a creator? Um, I would say Mayhem. Uh, okay. and, and mainly because uh, that was one that was probably at the point, this point, my most personal film because of everything that happened before it. Um, it's funny, I just watched it recently and I can see like, you know, it was one of my lowest budget films, but mm-hmm. I still feel like it's such a reflection of what I am able to do you that's know, crazy on, on that to small me canvas. because it feels like the biggest I, I well i'd say point blank feels probably the biggest budget which i don't know if it was because it was netflix related but i know no no it was like uh, point blank was definitely the biggest budget that was yeah. 12 um yeah. but if you th- if you consider like Just, how much the producers and the stars got you know yeah. like i think i at the end i had like seven to actually make the film which is fine yeah but it was definitely the biggest budget yet i i can look at that and go like that that one was beset by a lot more compromises mm-hmm. that were above my pay grade more than anything right. else whereas mayhem i like if anything that one felt like the most like i had final cut which i kind of did in a way like i was playing ball with the producers but in the end my, the cut that josh and i delivered was as close to what we wanted from the beginning you know no, no mayhem and, uh, looks yeah. freaking amazing it looks like a huge movie but it's i mean it just it it's it speaks to your talent as director to be able to bring that scale to something where there is you know you are limited in what you can do you know especially with like stuff like action where you're like trying to choreograph stuff and make it look cool you know <laughs> it's watch watching again two days ago and like like sitting there and doing like a running commentary talking about like oh wow we only had four hours for that moment whereas that's yeah. something that i think i remember oh all right. So one of my greatest achievements ever was having dinner with, and sorry for the name drop, but having dinner with Tarantino a couple months ago and finding out that he was a huge fan of Everly. 
Mm. And which is already, which already blew my mind. He's like, all right, tell me, all right, how many days did you have to shoot that film? Which is crazy. Cause that one to me feels the most like a Tarantino movie. Oh, well, it definitely, it it definitely was, you know? Um, But I told him, I was like, I had 24 days and he's like, what, what? Oh man. Now I love that movie even more, man. I had 81 days or something like that just to do the, the, um, the the final scene in kill bill one. And and I'm like, yeah, I know. It's crazy, right? <laughs> yeah. But you know, like th- the fact that you can have so- someone who I consider like a hero to be able to recognize the the craft that went into what I was trying to do, mm-hmm. like that that just blew me away. Yeah, after you, know? you regain but, consciousness, that probably feels pretty good, you know. <laughs> but I think you know, like even even looking at exactly like when I had to pick my jaw off the off the ground and and like go like, did you really say that? But even with like Everly, like all the films that I've done in one form or another have been very personal. I've been lucky enough that I've been able to make, for the most part, things that are a reflection of me at the time. So I look at Everly now and I can see, because, you know, the whole movie is about someone who is trying to fight their way out of a box, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I was in such an angry place after Nights of Bad Aston. Um, I mean, when we wrote, when I wrote, Everly and it got on the blacklist and then got sold. That was in the middle of um, uh, a post on Nights of Bad Aston. So I already had the idea of like, all right, I want this Dogma 95 style film where it has very set rules and, you know, can I actually make Die Hard in a room? Because that's mm-hmm. how we saw But then the production side of it was insane and it was very difficult, but in a good way, like I can look back and say that now at the time I'm like, Oh God, I'm never going to make movies again. But I can look at that and say, that is an artist shooting their way out of mm. being confined. Cause that's how I felt like on nights of bad Aston uh, because of the budget, because of the, the producers and the restrictions that they gave us. I felt like it was, I was getting, I was very claustrophobic. I was right. being squished into this box. And Everly is me shooting my way out of that box, literally shooting my way out of that box. Um, So, yeah, I mean, look, every filmmaker who's listening to this, I hope that you all get as lucky as I've been where I can look back at every one of the movies that I've done and say that without a doubt, and I'm sure that every filmmaker does this to a degree, uh, has this connection with uh, with the art that they're creating. But... I can look at Long Turn 2 and Knights of Bad Aston and Everly and Mayhem and Point Blank and Chillerama and Truth and Journalism and even the TV stuff that I've done um, and see me at that point or what right. that movie represents. You know, like Long Turn 2 is the 12 year old and me, you know, with every Fangoria spread out on my, you know, on my bed and everything going, someday I'm going to make a splatter movie. Um, you know, and that's what that is. Yeah. So, you know, it's mayhem is definitely the one where I go, I love how this was a lightning round. Um, <laughs> mayhem is the one where it's like the culmination of all that. Sure. Um, it was also the one that, you know, a had the, the least amount of money, but I can look at it and go like, I felt like I was most myself there. Right. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my long-winded answer. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, what is a movie that your diehard fans would be surprised that you enjoy? You mean uh, not of my own? Uh, yeah. All right. Um, 
I, I guess, you know, it, it's funny because if you go on my letterbox, um, which I do frequently, I stock, I stocked the letterbox this morning in the line of fire is a great movie. I got excited when I saw you had uh, revisited that. <laughs> my friend might know more about movies than I do, which is terrifying that I would ever meet someone <laughs> that, like is more encyclopedic than, than I am. Um, but you know, she's definitely opened my eyes up to movies that I just haven't either watched before or have, um, you know, just talked about, you know, or, or rediscovered, like we went to go see La Strada, um, Fellini's La Strada in, at the new art last weekend. It's like, last time I watched that, I had to get graded on it. Mm. So like, I've been opening up my world a lot more to movies that might not have been, um, in my wheelhouse. Um, because, you know, like when you start out as a filmmaker, you're wearing your influences on your sleeve. And a lot of times, you know, especially in like the whole splat pack era, like 10 years ago, um, it was all about like, what movies do you love? And, you know, like that would be like, you're connected to your fans. Um, I mean, the, the one, one movie that I would definitely say that I've had more people shocked that I love is, um, defending your life. Uh, Albert Brooks is defending your life. I haven't seen that. Oh, I'm I'm writing God. down a I'm writing down a note to watch it <laughs> right now. <laughs> Let me implore you: how much genius is captured in this film? Uh, I'm I'm not going to mm. go on forever about it, but it's essentially Albert Brooks plays uh, a, a version of himself in a way, like plays the, like an Albert Brooks character who dies, and in the rules of his heaven or purgatory, he has to basically go on trial to either go to heaven to ascend into the upper realms or get shipped back to earth and do it all over again. Gotcha. Uh, It is, it's magic. It's absolute magic. Um, Mm. But it's a very light film, you know, Meryl Streep's in it. She's amazing. Rip Torn's in it. Right. She's always amazing. Yeah. (laughs) But she's amazing and she's fucking hilarious. And this was at Mm. the point where, she was still dingo ate my baby and, you know, like doing all like the out of Africa's, you know, she wasn't known for her almost slapstick in a way. Mm-hmm. She's magical. Uh, it's on criterion disc right now. I highly recommend it. Um, God, other movies. I mean, uh, somebody recently gave me not shit, but they were like a little shocked. I think it was on the set of the Disney show that I loved um, Jonathan Demi's something wild. Hmm. And I don't, why anyone would have an uh, like an issue with that at all because if you know that movie yeah you look at the poster and go like quirky 80s comedy but then the last 20 minutes is a straight up fucking horror movie yeah. with Ray Liotta as a little science of the lambs precursor there <laughs> oh my yeah it, that movie's fucking terrifying at the end but i can look at that movie and go that is so much a quote-unquote joe lynch type movie because i like tonal roller coasters i mm-hmm. don't like when a movie you know, as long as the script is servicing this and you have characters that care about this, these kind of tonal shifts, I like a movie that will have um, tonal, tonal yeah. augments. I like where, you know, you can start a movie off and you think that you're watching a comedy and next thing you know, it's a horror movie. Mm-hmm. That's life. Life is not, a, you know, is, is not a, a comedy every day. It's not a drama every day. It's not an action film every day. There are all of those things. Mm-hmm. So if you can have a movie that can actually do the same thing and still engage the audience. That's, that's magic to me. Right. Right. Yeah. That's what I loved about, uh, I watched after hours for the first time and it was, to me, that's the definitive tonal roller coaster because you feel you're laughing one second and then you're so deeply uncomfortable 
the next second. And then sometimes you don't know which one you're supposed to be. When you're, when you're Griffin Dunn and like five minutes before, you know, he's traversing through this club that you don't have any clue about, but it's like, ha ha, that's funny. He's a fish out of water. And next thing you know, he's getting his head shaved and it's a fucking nightmare. Oh right. God, I love that. So, um, what is the best decade of film history? Oh man, that's a tough one. Um, uh, and again, I think part of, uh, part of my recent, like, like binging of just all cinema um, has uh, has really opened my eyes up to films of the forties, films mm-hmm. of the fifties. Um, oh, another movie that I, I don't think uh, fans would be um, uh, wouldn't wouldn't think is definitely one of my favorite movies. But Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, the musical, mm-hmm. fucking love that movie. So good. But again, it's not. No one dies. Right. It's light and fluffy and and beautifully you know lens. Not that I like dirty looking movies but i do like a lot of dirty movies too um i'm so <laughs> that's glad my next that question I, so we'll get there no I'll, we'll get there um but um and what was the question again <laughs> uh what, what's the best decade of film history oh okay um yeah i mean i personally and i know quentin would like roll in his supposed grave right oh now, no you're gonna say 50s he, no 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 he says <laughs> oh says the 80s is the worst decade of, of film mm. but i would disagree i like to for me personally living through and i think this is kind of important to any filmmaker who has like a stake in like what their favorite mm-hmm. decade is because it's easy to say the 70s because the 70s was that wonderful crossroads where um, you know the, the young the, the young hippies took over and the film brats took over and you know, we went from Dr. Doolittle to Easy Rider. Um, you know, there was this like convergence of both co- art and commerce mm-hmm. that really exploded in the 70s where you can have everything from, you know, the French connection to, you know, Halloween or like there, there was just everything was kind of coming to a head in a great way. The 80s took that sensibility and, and like, and it became more about i don't want to say product but it became more of a cottage cinema yeah it was very commercialized yeah yeah but you what was great about that was that you had an avenue for filmmakers like toby hooper to step Mm -hmm. into a studio system and make something that you know he started out in the 70s as being you know like a rebel filmmaker and then that rebel filmmaker got to you know augment himself into the eighties and make, you know, a studio film or, you know, all of the, all the cheesy shit that really inspired me as a little kid, like dead heat, you know, like the treat Williams, Joe Piscopo classic, all the stuff that like Corman was doing with new world or, you know, trauma was coming up at, at the time. So you had, but at the same time, you also had Jonathan Demi was going from Corman to making something wild. You had, Jim Jarmusch being able to grab a camera and start making stuff like Down by Law and then Mystery Train. There was this, like, again, a very commercialized um, sensibility with film in the 80s. And it, it allowed you to have a slickness, but there was still open avenues for independence. And, right. you know, that independent cinema sensibility, you know, exploded in the 90s, yeah. where now it was the the tides have turned 
where now it's all the indie films that were like the cool kids in the back of the bus in the 80s are now sitting in the front of the popular kids and the studio movies are the ones going like, I want to be one of the weirdos, you know, right. which is totally cool. Um, so I, I'm going to go with the 80s only because, you know, A, I'm a, I'm a fucking nostalgist in a way where like, because that's, that's where I grew up yeah. and most of my favorite movies kind of stem from that. And that's, those are the movies that really, um, I guess, formulated my DNA when it comes to mm-hmm. film. Um, so it, it's such a tough question because now I'm going, yeah, but the nineties were great, man. Right. Like, oh, well, it's, it. it's hard to be objective about it, you know? And I, I get, I get Tarantino's point about like the later end of the eighties, it started getting super sanitized. You know, the MPA was really going crazy. He calls it fifties part two, you know, like that's yeah. the fifties and eighties. But I like, if you look at the early eighties and like the end of the seventies, like that's a beautiful period of time, but it is hard to be objective because, you know, this is what I, I always get into trouble talking about horror because like my introduction was the platinum dunes remake. So like, I have a huge affinity for the O3 Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, I have a huge affinity for, you know, trust, I don't trust anyone who uh, does not like the, the remake of Texas Chainsaw. It's amazing. It's a, it's it, a great movie. Well, and it sent me back to the seventies to yeah, watch the original. It, wasn't, it, wasn't, it was respectful enough that allowed you to be able to go back to what Toby and Kim and all those guys were making in that sweaty fucking house back in the day and go, this is just another version of that type of story, but you know, give that to Marcus Nispo yeah. and Pearl that, cinematography and again, and taking his skill yeah, Pearl and see the evolution. I mean, that to me is the most fascinating thing about those two films is that you can see one cinematographer like breaking rules and, and doing things with the camera that should, I mean, the whole fucking the shot, shot to the back of the head. head. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But then you go like the shot from the, under the bench in the first one. And then the shot to the back of the head yeah. in, in the rebake. It's like, you know, we had Dan Pearl on the podcast a couple of years ago. And just to pick that guy's brain mm. is thing. Cause what people don't remember is that in between Texas, you know, the, the, the original and Texas, the, you know, Texas O3, Dan Pearl became one of the biggest music video cinematographers mm-hmm. in the world. That's how he got the gig. Yeah. <laughs> the rumor is, is that Marcus had no clue that he shot the first Texas Chainsaw. That's so funny. Which is fascinating. But look, everyone's got a different gateway into mm-hmm. genre, especially horror. And mm-hmm. I never disrespect that. I mean, like whenever you hear like, oh, what's the, the movie? You know, like, what's the horror movie that got you into it? And, you know, if someone said the Hitcher, the remake of the Hitcher, I can't fault them for that. You know, like, yeah. I can't. I don't like that movie. Like I, and I love Dave Myers and I love the original Hitcher, but if you're going to compare it to the one that, you know, Robert Harmon did back in 86, it's just a different way of storytelling in a way. Yeah, well, it's yeah. Everybody's gateway is different. And I think there's nothing. It's why the remake conversation, I, I love remakes because they do send people back to check out. What was that? You know, what was that original film? You have the original to fall back on, you mm-hmm. know? I look, I, and then this is something that um, I kind of subscribed to early on in Twitter because I could tell that people would get very volatile. Like when I first jumped onto Twitter and back all the way back in 09, <laughs> um, I, I, I just enjoyed starting conversations with people. Um, was that a tech, was that a Leatherface class? Uh, yes, I'm on brand. <laughs> right. 
Um, you know, when, when it's actually sponsored by uh, Daniel Pearl, that's why we mentioned him on the show. No, oh, just, perfect. But. The Pearl necklace. Um, but when, you know, when I got on, on Twitter at first, I just enjoyed starting conversations with people and, and would like for uh, every Sunday morning at 12, I would just go top three De Palma movies go or oh. top Gallo films go. <clears throat> and just to have people talking about movies and every once in a while that that conversation would turn toxic, whether it was, Oh, you like that movie or you've never seen this. And people would be like dicks about it. And I just remember going, look, and this, at this point I was, I only made one movie, which was long term two. And I felt like at that point I was never allowed to say something bad about someone else's movie because you could easily throw it back to me. Mm-hmm. I'm the guy that made long term two. So, you know, any criticisms that I have on stuff like that could be taken with a grain of salt because, well, I made the movie where a girl gets cut in half and entrails fall out of her vagina in the first five minutes. So who am I to judge? But I tried to stay positive about cinema. I don't like to be on. And and if you follow me, you probably know this. I don't like to shit on movies. I don't like to Mm -hmm. be overly critical with movies because we've all been there, you know, like. There's nothing worse. It's so easy to be like, fuck that movie. It's the worst film of all time. Yeah. You know, from the person who probably wishes they made fucking movies. Right. And didn't go into the, you know, step into the fire like we had to and have that pressure cooker and have that gun to your head going, you know, you've wanted this your entire life. Now you have to just get through six pages and try to get everything that you need because you're not coming back to this ever or this location ever again. So it's all in and you put that pressure on yourself and for it to be so easily dismissed by some mm-hmm. ding dong on Twitter to be like, worst movie ever. You suck. I hope you die. It's like no one needs that kind of. Well, right. Well, you know? That's what's cool about the show is, and this random round is way too long, but, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, that's one of the things I really love about doing this show is like talking to people, you know, I was preparing for a guest, you know, and, and, I was, when you know, you're going to be talking to someone who's put the time and you're starting to know, like the story behind the movie that they made, you start watching movies going like, this is a great movie, you know, like setting aside, like all of the restrictions they had, or maybe that CGI doesn't look so good in this moment, you know, but it's like, you have this new level of respect for any movie that gets made. Like there's a baseline respect for like, they actually made it, you know, when, when I like my biggest thing, and this is why, like when I first started out, I worked at trauma and I remember having this like feeling about Lloyd and and the toxic Avenger. Remember thinking like, if you know, I I had so much respect that they even just Mm -hmm. got that movie made, you know, it's like, congratulations. And once you make a movie, you have all the respect in the world for other filmmakers and how hard it is to make a movie or even just to get to that set or to get it finished or to get it out to audiences. And it's not sitting on, you know, on, on some shelf somewhere. Right. Every, every battle is a huge one. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for me, I'm always of the mind of like, we have to just pick each other up and keep championing each other. Yeah. Whether it's in podcast form, whether it's, you know, on letterboxd or whatever, like, yeah. I hate, God, there's there's nothing worse than watching it, like and especially like a new movie, and going like, oh God, I like I really did not like that, but I, I'm I gotta say something on Letterbox because I, I want a lot. <laughs> so at the very least, any bad reviews that I've ever had of anything, I'll at least go like, I love the score. Yeah. You know, and then you 
if you can read between the lines, but to sit there and like pick apart a movie like that, it's like, it doesn't do anybody any favors. Like I would much rather be a champion for other people's work and, or, or, you know, not my own, but my own tastes and what I like out of movies Mm -hmm. as opposed to like what I don't, because at the end of the day, like we don't, Mind you, there might be a few people that might not subscribe to this idea, but at the end of the day, I don't think there's anyone out there that watches movies deliberately to hate them. There's some people that do, but for the most part, we it's that's why it's called entertainment. It, we are, you know, like we, I think we all go into this going, I want to be swept away, I want to be affected, I want to laugh, I want to cry, I want to scream, I want to yell, I want to shout, but I want to forget about the rest of my world for a little bit. And I'm doing this in a positive way. I want, like, even if you want to watch Cannibal Holocaust or whatever, not that you can say, like, I want to, I want to put myself in a better mood. Let's put on a Serbian film. Um, you know, like, I, I still feel like cinema is an art to elicit endorphins of positivity. Mm-hmm. You know, or even even if you see something disturbing like Hereditary or Midsummer or you know Salo or what have you. Come and see. So funny because I just I've been on an Italian cannibal movie run for the last like two days. So it's funny that that's your (laughs) your go to. But yeah, like even then you are trying to be affected in a way where you can Mm -hmm. even like walk away from Cannibal Fro and like shake it off. Go woohoo, boy, boy! I'm so glad that I'm here and not in the jungle right now. It's like like you're. You're you're idealizing your own life by watching some grim shit if need be, yeah. you know, and be able to go like, well, now I get to step away from that, you know. Yeah. And yes, life life is a little bit better, and the roses are a little bit uh, redder, and the the grass is a little greener. Thank God that I'm not like I don't have a fucking wood pole stuck up my ass, <laughs> so I'm good there, you know. So I've always just I I want to always champion film and and i'm always rooting for every filmmaker you know out there i because i've been there too you know yeah. and i know how hard it is to make a movie and i like you were saying you want when especially when you're talking to someone you do appreciate what they're going for and you know what they know that that cg effect sucks too yeah they're telling <laughs> themselves <laughs> believe me there are things that you know people like like in my movies, and I'm like, no, 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 no. I have an entire movie called Nights of Bad Aspen. Yeah, like, people love. Like, yeah. Fucking love that movie, and I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah. I what? used to subscribe to. I here. Do you have 45 minutes? Let me tell you everything that fucked up on that movie. Now, yeah. who am I to judge? Like those people are bringing something completely different to the table. Like they yeah. don't like they're not. They don't have your baggage. They don't, when they they go don't have yeah. baggage. They don't know the context. They're just watching this goofy movie with Steve Zahn and Peter Dinklage and Ryan Quanton and Summer Glau and Jimmy Simpson that they've seen from other TV shows or whatever. They're LARPing. They have fake fucking swords. And they're having a good time. If they didn't know any of the trials and tribulations that I went through on this, none the wiser, you know? But, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's everyone brings something different to the table. And I like, and I want to just continue to champion that. Right. With that in mind, and maybe this was kind of your answer, but what's the best piece of advice you would give to an aspiring filmmaker? Um, it probably could be to just champion others' no, work, but I'll, I'll I'll be very like weirdly practical. Know everyone's name on your set, whether you have five people or fifty or five hundred. Uh, 
if you know everyone's name and you can say good morning to Phil and Bob and Janet, and there is, and I've been there on sets where I wasn't the director. Yeah. And when the director who is, you know, still kind of at the end of the day, the, the leader, you know, of the, of the team, they're, they're the ones who are forging everything ahead. At least it should be, at least they should kind of take that, that responsibility. When your captain says good morning to you in a, in a workflow that most people don't expect that it goes a long way. Um, I learned this very valuable advice on my own um, on, I think it was on Everly after again, I had just been beaten down and I hated myself. I hated everybody, not I hated everybody around me, but I hated that it felt like it was me versus, you know, the world. I hated that there was a language barrier because we shot it in Serbia. So I started this thing where every, uh, every weekend I would write a letter to the crew and it would mm -hmm. go out to the cast and the crew on Sunday night uh, before the next day's shoot. And it would just be as simple as, Hey everybody, we're, we're doing this great job. You know, it's like, man, it was tough this week or whatever, but I would write this little letter and I've done it ever since I really, and you know, what's shocking to me. And, and I just did this again on all the TV shows and everything. You do not know how important and powerful that can be because people don't expect it. And that blows my mind. I can't believe that like more directors don't do this. Yeah. They don't personalize the experience and make everyone feel like they are part of a collaboration. It's not, you know, the above the line versus the below the line. It should be, we're all in this together. Um, yeah. uh, recently when I was on the Disney show in new Orleans and I would park with the rest of the crew, not deliberately. It was mostly just because I couldn't find my parking spot. <laughs> and I just said, fuck it. I'm just going to park over here in the grass with everybody else. And two or three times crew members were like, oh, I'm sorry, Joe, your parking um, spot is over there. Why are you parking with us? I'm like, we're all in this together. Like yeah. I, I don't see the difference between me and you and whoever else. Like we all have a job. We got hired to be here. We're all doing it together. We all have to be kind of collaborative in that respect. So why should I be any different from you? And then the guy's like, that's incredibly socialist. I respect that. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> good day, man. Like man, man of the people. Yeah. But in, in the end, just because it says a Joe Lynch film or directed by Joe Lynch or whatever, I wouldn't get what I need without that guy, without that mm -hmm. girl, without everybody working together. So things like knowing everybody's name, you know, and where you can say good night or good morning with their name attached to it. Um, and doing things like writing, you know, writing a letter to, you know, or just a little personal note to everybody. That is the difference between you making your day sometimes and not making your day sometimes. Yeah. Because there was every single production, at least once, there's a day where it's like the day got, got away from you and you, you know, you can't, you got to leave the location. You got to get those shots before you go. And there are certain productions where, Product like the crew members can just drop cable and say, Asta lasagna, see ya, yeah. you know, and we're out of here, you know, or go, you know what? He was so nice to me, or she was really cool to me, you know, and, and, and never made me feel like an asshole, or it was just like, I want to give them the extra five minutes that they need. Right. In that extra five minutes, you might get the take that has the line or the improv moment that ends up being in the trailer that ends up being in the film that people quote 50 years from now. Right. 
Yeah, exactly. It is all about time when it comes to production. And if you can make everyone feel important on that set, you watch how fast you're going to, that that's going to um, benefit you in the long run. You know, and I, and if you want to call it manipulative, manipulative or shrewd, so be it. But it has never steered me wrong, and I've I've walked away from every single production, making new friends, making new family members, people that I want to collaborate again with, all the time. And yeah. you know, and that to me is crucial because there are going to be some tough fucking days on those sets, and if you know that, like at the very least, you have that crew like behind you, not against you. Um, it it definitely helps. It completely. Yeah. I know that it wasn't supposed to be like some big analytical version of like what's the best advice, but like I guarantee you, at least one filmmaker who's listening to that is going to try that, and they're going to get that shot or that extra take, and they're going to go, "Thank you, Joe Lynch. Thank you for that." Because <laughs> fuck, man, I I got what I needed, you know. Right. Because again, we it's a collaborative process. It's it should not be like a top down sort of situation. Like yeah. it takes a make a movie whether you're making it like with 10 people like sean baker just did with red rocket or you're fucking michael bay and you have thousands right. of people that are all following behind you at the end you're still not doing it it's not an insular job and you yeah. have to treat the collaborative process yeah no i, lo- I love that advice and, and i appreciate you taking the time to to share all of this and you always on the movie crypt, uh, you wax people's cars, uh, and, uh, you, you like to hype guests up and, and sincerely, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of yours. Obviously I reached out to you for a reason. Um, I didn't just go like, who's the, the coolest director out there, you know, it's fine. Oh, <laughs> Scrolling IMDB, you know, to see who, who to pick. And, um, and honestly, man, I mean, uh, I'm a huge, huge fan of a lot of the same filmmakers, you know, and, 2016, 2017, you know, Wes Craven passing away, Toby Hooper, you know, George Romero is back to back to back. And it was cool, you know, listening to the movie crypt and hearing you and Adam who are fans of the genre still making movies. It's, it's cool seeing generation to generation like this still happening and that there's still people out there scrapping together the duct tape and a couple quarters to make a movie and so, you know, it's a, it's a huge inspiration, you know, it's, it's, it's really amazing. And it's, you know, my palms were sweaty writing you a first email to say, Hey, you know, will you come on the show? Because you're, you're a big inspiration to me. Uh, so I wanted to, wanted to do that. Didn't want to make it weird in the beginning, but I want to say thank you for, you know, all of the work you've done, the films you've made and for just the podcast, like just sharing the realities, good and bad and ugly uh, about the industry. It's been, it's been awesome. I was talking about this just recently, um, how like our original plan with, with the podcast was that it was just going to be 10 weeks to promote the, the Holliston show. And <laughs> then, you know, like every week, and I think every creative goes through this where Monday they're like, all right, I'm going to get those 10 pages done or 20 or 30 pages written, or I'm going to accomplish this. I'm going to do that. Or I'm going to get that call. I'm going to get that job. And by the end of the week, you're like, oh my God, I never want to, why the fuck did I do this? What <laughs> Like I've just been beaten down. And then because of just the schedule, we would do it every Friday night. And by both Adam and I would get to the office and be like, I'm done. I'm out. Like, I can't deal with this anymore. It's all bullshit. I'm we just going to like, let's let be pool cleaners. It'll be great. Like we'll just set up a little fucking shop. We'll get a pickup. We'll take all the, the other letters off and we'll just say, yo, it'll be fine. It'll be, life will be simple. 
And then we have a guest on and we realize, oh, they're mm. dealing with the same thing that we're dealing with. And then because we all talk it out and we become, it becomes therapy, so to speak, right. it, it allows us to vent enough to go, you know what, let's pick up our, let's pull up our socks and let's keep going, you know, yeah. because everybody goes through that. And that's, it's helped us. It's helped other people. So, um, so no, Eric, that means the world to me that you'd, you'd say that, um, because again, we're all in this together, you know, there, there is no delineated line between artist and audience, because we feel like if you're not, if you don't love movies, you shouldn't be making movies. And if you're making movies, you should still be out there and, and, and find the reasons why you do it. So Mm. the fact that we can all do it together and talk about it on forums like this is a great thing. So I had a great time. I hope I'd. I'm sorry if I went along myself no. and have a heart out. No, uh, you're fine. But no, it was it was great, dude, and I, and I can't wait to do it again. Thanks for listening to the Film School Podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, don't forget to leave a five-star review and hit subscribe so you won't miss a single episode.